Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Roth, but my friends call me the Booby Docs. My popular social media account where I talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and fun way. I'm a board-certified radiologist who specializes in breast imaging and image-guided procedures. I'm also a 40-something Ashkenazi Jewish woman with a strong family history of breast cancer and BRCA, so I know a thing or two about breast cancer. And this is my podcast, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, this podcast is for you. Each episode, I sit down with top breast cancer experts, thrivers, providers, and those that love them to bring you the breast information. So get ready to learn, laugh, and let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please refer to your doctor with any symptoms or concerns you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hi, breasties. I'm sorry, I had to. All right, so welcome to the Booby Docs podcast. I'm your host, Robin. Um, I am coming to you after a few months summer sabbatical. I am feeling refreshed. I had a great summer. It went by way too quick. Over the summer, I recorded a bunch of amazing conversations that I'm excited to release to you over the next few weeks. Today is our two-year podcast anniversary. Just two years ago, we came out with our first episode, Breast Surgery Appointment with Dr. Kayun Flannery. And it has been such a fun ride, and I loved watching this podcast grow. I'm so happy to announce that we have over 20,000 downloads, over 55 star reviews, and the, the feedback has been so positive. The amount of people that this podcast has helped them through a breast cancer diagnosis is just warms my heart. I love doing this, and I want to continue doing this. And this podcast would not be possible without my amazing podcast producer, Christian Cuveda. He started as my med student, and he is going to be our radiology resident next year. He's been me, he has been with me since day one. He has a degree in AV engineering, so thankfully he puts this podcast together, and I could not do it without him. So thank you, Christian. I am so grateful to each and every one of you who listen to this podcast. And we've gotten some really amazing reviews over the past two years. And I just wanted to start sharing a few because every time I get a review like this, it just, I do a little happy dance and it means the world to me. So simply the breast, I mean the best. This podcast is so informative. Every woman should be listening. The information is shared in a, in a digestible way, making a tough and scary subject easier to understand. Thank you so much for this podcast. Outstanding info about breast cancer. Great podcast to, to learn excellent info from real doctors who share about breast cancer in an upbeat way. I'm going to do one more. As a provider, there are not many podcasts to look to for guidance, education, and support to help us make decisions best fit for our journey in BRCA and to options for prevention. So thankful for the Booby Docs. I am so thankful for you. Please continue to share this podcast with friends and write reviews. It does help get this information out to a wider audience who could really use it. And I'm so excited. This is actually our first repeat guest. And I thought this would be full circle since it is our two-year podcast anniversary. Today, we have Dr. Elise Cardonic. Dr. Cardonic is a high-risk OBGYN who specializes in cancer during pregnancy. She is also a mentor and a dear friend. Since we last spoke, she herself has been diagnosed with cancer. And she shares her story of going from doctor to patient and what she has learned. Dr. Cardonic, thank you so much for coming back on the Movie Docs podcast. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I'm about to get my fifth treatment tomorrow. Um, it was it was supposed to be last week, so it's delayed a week because my counts were low. So I'm hoping it goes off without a hitch tomorrow. 
although I have enjoyed not having the symptoms that usually come with it for the last week, that's been kind of nice to have a break, but it's just pushing the timeline back a bit. Oh, that's the worst. Where are you in your treatment right now? Yes, I finished six weeks of radiation and now I'm in the uh, fifth of six cycles, hopefully starting tomorrow, uh, of chemo. Oh, I pray that goes off without a hitch. Um, what, what symptoms are you experiencing from the chemo? So the weirdest symptom is... Well, first of all, right away you get cold sensitivity. So I can't touch anything cold. Like literally the nurse about to start my IV chemo said, put your cold apple down that I was eating at the time. So get cold sensitivity in your fingertips uh, right away. And then the weirdest sensation is the next day, or even let's say I finish by four o'clock, let's say the next meal at dinner time, the very first bite of whatever I'm eating gives me intense jaw pain. Like from your jaw, your chin, all the way up to your ears. It's incredibly painful. And for some reason, it only happens with the first bite. So as soon as that, I hold my face really tight, maybe last 40 seconds goes away. Then I could eat the rest of the apple or whatever, no problem. A couple hours go by, I go to eat lunch, first bite happens again. And it's literally called first bite syndrome. And it happens with the platinum agents. It's bizarre. Is that something that your patients told you about? Like, were you familiar with the side effect? I never knew to ask about that. Now, I didn't even know about it myself. The first time that it happened, I was literally eating a blueberry. And I thought, oh, maybe it was too cold from the refrigerator. I didn't leave it out long enough. I got through that. And then I forgot about it. And then at lunch, I went to bite something that was not even cold. And I was like, okay, that's weird. And then at dinner, I had soup. And that happened. And then when I finally went to the oncologist, I'm like, this is really going to sound strange. But every time I go to eat something, only the first bite, I get this intense shopping. And they go, oh, that's called first bite syndrome. So I had, I didn't know to expect that. That's pretty intense. That's almost to the point where you look at food and you say, how badly do I want to eat that? Because I know it's going to hurt. That sounds terribly uncomfortable. And yeah, I had never heard of that side effect either. So it just shows you what we don't know. So you are actually our first repeat guest. Did you know that? No, I did not. <laughs> so not Dr. Well. Cardonic, I know, Dr. Cardonic was actually on the end of episode two, which is one of my favorite episodes. Um, it was called Making the Breast of It with our friend Kristen <laughs> Gentile. So Kristen Gentile was diagnosed with breast cancer during pregnancy, well, during her third pregnancy. And I'm actually really sad to report that she passed away a few months ago from her oh, breast cancer. Oh, I know. Sorry. That's sad. I know. It is devastating because she was such a light and she had an incredible podcast called Making the Breast of It. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I think of her a lot. Like she was one of our first guests ever. And she was actually the person who inspired me to make this podcast. Wow. I wow. know. So. And how's your family? You know, they're doing great. Every so often I see her husband, John, posting pictures of their three beautiful boys. Um, I'm trying to get him on the podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. To see, because it's almost been a year now. So just seeing where they're do how they're doing. Wow. I know. That was a tough one. You know, so since we last spoke, as I mentioned, you have, you yourself have been diagnosed with rectal cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about how you were diagnosed? Was that found on a colonoscopy? So no, my colonoscopy was fine in 2021. Um, I was having pain at the top of my thigh and the bottom of my tush, like right in that muscle there. I was having this like 
sharp pain. I thought I pulled a hamstring. I thought I did something. I loved kickbox. So I thought every time when I was doing squats or kickboxing, my left thigh, maybe I pulled something. So I stopped kickboxing for a couple of weeks, didn't get better. I went to physical therapy. They thought I had like piriformis syndrome, but I didn't really have tingling all the way down the back of my leg. So it didn't quite fit into anything. Um, and sometimes I'd be sitting at work and I had to like literally jump out of my chair. I had this exquisite nerve pain in my, in my buttocks. I was like, what the heck? I, I, it was really bizarre. I was literally either standing at work or sitting on my right side. I couldn't sit and put pressure on my left buttocks. It's just not all day, but when that pain would happen, it was just like sporadic. So finally I went to a, um, pelvic pain specialist. Cause I just felt like now sometimes there's radiating to my hip. Sometimes there's radiating to my groin. And I'm like, I just knew something was going on in my pelvis, but no one could figure out what it was. And I went, I went to this, um, great pelvic pain, uh, GYN Susan Kellogg in Philadelphia. Cause she had given grand rounds at our institution about pelvic pain. I had sent patients to her and I was like, you know, if anyone's going to figure out what's happening in my pelvis, I had a normal exam with my GYN. Everything is normal. I wasn't having menopausal symptoms or dryness or anything. So it wasn't hormonal. And I went to her and she just did a thorough, thorough exam. She said something mechanical is going on in your pelvis. I don't quite know what it is, but the left side where you're having pain, like I can feel like it's tighter. You know, when I examine you, your pelvic exam, it's just tighter. The muscles are all like angry and hypertrophied. Like something is it's reacting to something that's going on. And when she did a pelvic rectal exam, vaginal rectal exam, there was blood on her glove when she took her hand out and she said, okay, now it's time you need to go to GYN, a GU, I'm sorry, a GI doctor. And I called one of the great, really sweet GI doctors at Cooper. And I told her the situation with the weird symptoms. And she said, you know, what? don't spend time coming to me because I'm going to want you to see a GI surgeon anyway. So just go to the colorectal surgeon because if you're having blood, someone needs to look inside, feel inside, see what's going on. And she said, maybe you have a tear, a fissure or something, and your muscles are just reacting to the healing, whatever. So I wasn't worried about it. I knew it had a normal colonoscopy 2021. So I probably didn't see the surgeon for like another 10 days. Because I was like, by the time my work schedule worked and her schedule worked, I wasn't in a rush. I wasn't thinking cancer. But I was excited to finally get an answer of what's happening. And as soon as she examined me, she said, there's a tumor here. I don't know if you have rectal cancer or anal cancer, but there's a tumor. And I said, what happened to the fissure? I'm supposed to have a tear. So, yeah, and I went by myself and I was just shocked. And she was very straightforward. She goes, I'm not going to, you know, give you false hope and beat around the bush. You know, this is what it is. We need to take care of it. We need to get a biopsy. We know what we're dealing with. And it moved quickly from there. I had a biopsy the next day. And by the time I got to recovery, her office called and said, okay, your MRI is Tuesday, your CAT scan's Wednesday. We need to see if it's spread. We need to see what we're dealing with. And that was that. Crazy. Oh, crazy. I really think it just emphasizes like what a cancer diagnosis is like, right? Like the rug is pulled up from underneath you. Yes. Everything happens so fast. And you're just like, what is happening? How I, I thought I was healthy, right? right? I walked out of there like a ping pong ball. I was bouncing off the wall to the desk, to the wall, to the desk. I was in Ugh. such a phase trying to get to my car. I was blown away. Like I never, I wasn't having bleeding when I went to the bathroom. I 
I just had no idea. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't mm -hmm. really expect that. So, yeah. Ugh. I Crazy. mean, when, when you told me, when you told us, I was shocked. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a lot to digest mm -hmm. in a short period of time. And it, it really just shows you what our patients are going through yeah. and just, yeah, like you cannot take your health for granted. And it's funny you say that because when I was younger, every holiday that I can remember since I've been five years old, New Year's, you know, the Jewish holidays, whatever there was an opportunity, birthdays, whenever there was an opportunity to do a toast, my grandmother always said, to your health. And I would say to her, Mom, Mom, that's, we have that already. Why don't you wish for something else? Why don't you toast to something else? Like, I never realized that you're not guaranteed to have your health. But every single holiday, she always did that. And I always thought, huh, don't you want like a new sweater or something? Like, why are you wishing for that? Because we have that already and we don't right. we take it for granted. Yeah. The older you get, the more you realize yeah. that health is a luxury, right? Yeah. Like it is not, it is not uh, guaranteed and life is short. Yeah. I mean, I do remember as a resident being in the hospital on my internal medicine rotation or, or hematology, taking care of a young guy who had leukemia and it was a summer day and I was just playing cards with him in his room to just, you know, have the time go by. And I looked out the window and I thought, this really sucks. Middle of the summer to be a patient stuck in the hospital. Like how sad is that? And um, it's true. You don't have control over your, your, your schedule. Even last week I went home. I got my labs on Tuesday. I was ready to get my chemo Wednesday. And they're like, Nope, counts aren't good. Come back next week. Like your whole schedule is not, you can't organize things. Like, especially if you're used to being organized and scheduling, like, what do you mean? My next one's three weeks from now. My MRI is already scheduled and my back to work date's already figured out. Like there's cancer doesn't pay attention to what you think your schedule is. I think that's one of the biggest things I've heard from talking to cancer patients is like the lack of control. Like yeah. a lot of people that get diagnosed with cancer, you know, they're type A, they're so used to having everything in their control yeah. and cancer is just out of your control. And it just gives, I think, I think it gives everyone a new perspective and lease on life in a positive way, but it sucks that it has to be cancer that like makes you realize that. Yes. Yeah. I right. Agree. Um, yeah, a lot. And I am just like, my heart goes out to you that you're going through this and I know it's so stressful and just, it's a constant, it's just always in your mind and I'm, I'm wishing you the best of luck with Thank everything. You. Thank you. Welcome. You. Appreciate it. Like I thought I was only having four cycles, so I went in there all excited and I'm like, yay, it's my last one. And the, Dr. Chris was like, no, it's not. You have a fifth and sixth cycle to go to. So it's like the emotional up and down, you know, it's just, it's a lot. It's a roller coaster and, you know, you live scan to scan and you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a lot. Yeah. My last scan, that will be three weeks after my final chemo, I will be like just biting my nails, hoping that it shows nothing. And, you know, cause that's going to determine whether I need to have more treatment and I'm just hoping it's gone. And that'll be a long time waiting for those results with bated breath. Yeah. I mean, anxiety is real um, or the anxiety that you have when you're waiting for the results of the test, you know, cause it does, it does have a big impact in your treatment. And, you know, as a radiologist, I recognize this as I read a scan, you know, I'm constantly praying that it gets better. And just, I just know that patients are waiting for these results. And 
a lot rides on it. So yeah, my heart goes out to you. Uh, you know, so you're in a unique position because obviously you're a cancer doctor, and but now you're also unfortunately a cancer patient. What has that transition been like for you? What have you learned from this experience? Well, I as a as a physician taking care of pregnant women with cancer, I always felt I was going to get cancer at some point. Um, I obviously thought it would be breast cancer because that's the most common that happens in pregnancy and outside of pregnancy. You just know so many women with breast cancer. I was floored that I got rectal cancer. I don't have any risk factors for that. Um, but as far as going from doctor to patient, the weirdest thing is like things like that, like not knowing what symptoms to expect. Um, and a doctor, you know, they tell you the most common symptoms that affect 50% of people or more, but they, I guess they can't tell you everything that affects 10 or 15 patients, 10 or 15% because it might not happen to you. So that's, you know, when you read a list of like, 25 symptoms something can occur, can cause, you don't really pay attention to them. If you hear one or two, like, okay, you're going to have finger pain. You're going to have cold sensitivity. Don't reach in the refrigerator for the milk without gloves on. Like my son brought me a pair of, of gloves for the refrigerator, which was, which was sweet that I knew about that, but they can't tell you about every symptom that might happen. So that was kind of weird experiencing something that the doctors knew about, but didn't tell me because it, it's in a small percentage of patients. Um, the other thing that was eye-opening for me was that we always were told in medical school, you know, when, and residency, when you give someone bad news or you're going to give someone, tell them to bring someone with them because they're not going to hear everything you say and they may not remember. And when I went to my oncology appointment and then the radiation oncology appointment, I was like leaning forward, listening to everything they said. I was sure I got it all down. And then... The night before my radiation treatment, my first one, which was the first like first treatment before chemo, I couldn't sleep the night before. I had nightmares of like feeling like I was going to be electrocuted. Like I didn't know what to expect. So when I first got there, I laid down on the table. I had to lay on my stomach. And she said, D you know, put your head in a comfortable position and then don't move. And I'm going to start. And I just started to cry. I didn't cry when they told me the diagnosis. I didn't cry until that moment I got hysterical. My body was shaking and I was so nervous. I was going to feel like, zzz, like a zapper coming at me. And the nurse stopped and she came over. She goes, honey, it's not going to hurt. I'm going to hug you when you get off the table. It's not going to hurt. And I was like, okay. And then I relax. And eight minutes later, I get off the table. I walk outside to my husband. He sees my face is like streaked with tears. He's like, what happened? And I said, I was so nervous. It was going to hurt. I've been nervous since last night. He said, Elise, the doctor told you twice it wasn't going to hurt. And I didn't hear it. You know, here's the other thing that blew me away was that I have been, you know, vegetarian or pescatarian. I take a ton of supplements. I exercise. I've tried to avoid the sun. I was trying to be so healthy. And despite all of that, you still can get cancer. That, that was the other, you know, crazy thing. I mean, I had to provide the list of supplements I was taking to make sure there was no interaction. And it was, I was laughing as I was typing like the 15th supplement, the 16th supplement. I'm like, what more could I have done? And it just didn't matter. Well, I think that's an incredibly important point. It's like nothing that you did not cause your cancer, nothing you did or did not do caused your cancer. So cancer is not your fault, number one. You know, there's nothing that you can do to prevent developing cancer. There are lots of things that we can do to lower our risk. But at the end of the day, cancer is a complex, multifactorial thing. Like there are lots of environmental factors that are out of our control. 
Um, you know, people ask me all the time, do I avoid aluminum in my deodorant? Do I avoid certain sports bra? And the answer is no, you kind of have to live your life because at the end of the day, you could do everything right and still get cancer. And also like life is short, enjoy your life because nothing is guaranteed. They told me patients with rectal cancer are now being diagnosed in their 30s and 40s. Oh, yeah. I mean, like recent studies have come out showing that cancer is on the rise in young people. It's increasing at about 2% per year. The highest increase was actually in breast cancer in women ages 30 to 39. That was a 17% increase over a 10-year period. So something is going on. We don't exactly know what that is yet. It's probably not one thing, but multiple things. You know, and a lot of these people don't have the typical risk factors that, you know, physicians are looking for. So it can be very confusing. I think that, you know, as physicians, we have to take our patients' health complaints seriously, even if they are young, because we do know that there is an increase in cancer in young people. So what's next in your treatment after the chemotherapy? Well, hopefully nothing. I'm hoping that after the sixth cycle, I wait three weeks, I do the scan, they don't see anything on the MRI, then I go back to the surgeon and she can do her little sigmoidoscopy and her exam. And if nothing is there, then I'm going to do the watch and wait approach, which means I'll probably do like a sigmoidoscopy every three months and the exam every three months for a while. And then every six months and hope that it doesn't come back. If unfortunately there's something there, then I'll need to have surgery. Right. And we're trying to avoid surgery because we do not want a bag. Correct. We do not want a colostomy bag. I do not want surgery. Surgery's prolonged, painful, more time out from work. I'm just ready to like have this behind me already. So what is your best advice to anyone who has been newly diagnosed with uh, cancer or is currently battling cancer? I mean, through having the registry and you encouraging me to put my story out there on the Cancer Pregnancy Instagram, I've gotten amazing advice and support from my patients. I mean, it has been such a heartwarming experience. And, uh, a lot of times when I, you know, when, when I was having my treatment, maybe the day before, I was so nervous that I was going to be vomiting. I just did not want to experience nausea. I almost didn't want to go to the next cycle. Like the first cycle is fine. You go in there, you don't know what to expect. Now that you see the nausea and the jaw pain and the finger pain, you're like, I don't want to go back for cycle two. And cycle two was worse than cycle one. So for cycle three, I was like, I am not going back. And it was my patients that told me. So they, some of the best advice was, First of all, plan something fun for the day after to look forward to. Instead of me looking like I kept looking at three more weeks is the next one. Three more weeks is the next one. I was looking at, you know, down the road at having to finish six cycles. They're like, just get through this one and look forward to something fun the next day. So that was really good. And bring something, you know, that you don't normally treat yourself with. So I bring like my, my father's favorite tasty cake lemon pies with me. So I'd like to look forward to something. And the other thing was just to really look short term. Don't look at the whole long term because as you see, you, you get off course. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to, I was marking off the calendar, literally that August 25th, I would be done everything. I'd have my MRI and I would be good to go back to work. And that call calendar got messed up and I was crossing off the days and looking at the, at the long term. And they're like, just take it in little steps, just get through this cycle. And I think that really helped me. I just concentrated on getting through the next day and the day after that. And the day after that, and every day after the chemo, the symptoms get less and less. Then you got to gear yourself up to go through it again. But looking at it short cycles instead of, you know, long term was, was very helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think you got to take it day by day, right? You don't have a choice but to do that. So you mentioned that you run an Instagram called Cancer and Pregnancy, which I love. 
And early on, I encourage you to share your story with your followers, which you really didn't want to at first, but then you chose to. I didn't, well, first of all, I didn't want people feeling sad for me and I wanted it to be about my patients. But then I thought, you know, about what you said, and I certainly encouraged my patients to share their story, you know, to help other people. So I was like, how can I ask my patients to share? And then I'm not going to do it. And it really has been an outpouring of support. Really more came back to me than I think went out. Um, I'm so happy to hear that. I kind of expected that because I just think that like when you share the ups and downs, right? Like mm -hmm. you're a doctor, but now you're a patient. Like that is just so much insight that you can't get from medical school or textbook. Right. Like, right. so just the, like what you've learned in this experience is, you know, it's every, I don't, I, I don't believe it. I think everything happens for a reason, but I hate to say that cancer is part of it, right, but right. like, you're going to come out of this much stronger and just knowing who you are. Yeah. And I, and I have to say that the kindness that you get back from people is unbelievable. Like, you know, you have friends and then those friends just rise to the occasion. Like you always love them to begin with, but that things that they do for you and, and call you on, like I don't have little kids that I have to make lunches for at this stage in my life or need help around the house. It's just me and my husband at home right now. Right. So people are like, we're going to do meal train for you. We're going to do, I don't need that. But just a text that's saying, thinking of you or people that I haven't talked to in years, reaching out that they heard and sending me a, a text, thinking of you and wishing you well, it's just the kindness has just really been unbelievable. It really has. And it's, it's heartwarming. It's really special. I feel like you get to know who's in your circle for yes. real. Yes. Yeah. And the circle got bigger. Like who you thought was in your circle was one thing. The circle is like, it now has like spokes. It's like a wheel. It just keeps reaching and reaching the people that have, you know, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So what is your best advice to someone on how to be a good friend or caretaker to someone going through cancer treatment? I think just the kindness, you know, it's like, um, coming for short visits if you're up to it and just keeping you company or, you know, I think what my brother did for me was made me laugh every day. He sent me a joke of the day. I'm like, I just need something to make me laugh so I don't cry. And so he sent me a joke of the day. And my other friend, Amy, sends me like all these funny Instagram videos of dogs because she knows I love dogs. And I just laugh. And it's just really nice, you know, to, to do that. Um, some friends have made food. I don't really have a big appetite. So some friends have sent like, you know, food. One of the nicest things I came came home from a long weekend, I must've mentioned to a friend pre-cancer that like, I wish I could just figure out like how to plant vegetables in my garden. And I, I just I have this plot and it's just overgrown with weeds. And I just I have to deal with this someday. And then I get diagnosed and I came home one day and she weeded my entire garden with her sister, planted vegetables, super sweet, like just super sweet. And uh, I was very touched. Yeah, I was very touched. And I look out at the garden and I see, you know, the people care about me and it was just such a nice thing to do. And uh, yes, yeah, people send you like, you know, strength messages and mantras and just, you know, the well wishes is, is nice. Here's the other thing I didn't know, you know, you get this terrible metallic taste in your mouth from platinum drugs and, and between the jaw pain and the taste in my mouth, I just didn't want to eat sometimes. And, uh, 
my patients were the ones who told me, not the physician. Maybe I didn't answer the right questions, but the patients told me after three, three like treatments or so, you know, you're not. And I was trying to stay hydrated. So I was putting water or, or juice in a metal bottle and carrying it with me. And they said, you know, you probably shouldn't use metal silverware or metal water bottles, which I had been doing since day one. I had no idea. So one of my friends got me these cute bamboo silverware to take with me, you know, to restaurants and stuff. Because I was walking into restaurants with, like, if I could eat outside when I felt up to it, like maybe the third week when my, you know, I was just about to get the next cycle. And I'd walk in with a plastic fork in my pocketbook. And the restaurant was offended. Like, we have real silverware. And I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. So she got me this nice bamboo silverware to walk into places with. So that was very sweet. Isn't it crazy that it's like the little things that you like took for granted, yes. like metal silverware? Yes. Yes. You know, like that's the thing that really triggers you and yeah. causes you discomfort. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So tell my listeners a little bit about your training and your clinical practice and how you became an expert on cancer during pregnancy. I'm an OBGYN, so obstetrician, uh, which is a four-year residency program after medical school. And during those four years, I didn't encounter anyone, any patient with cancer who was pregnant, but I did meet patients who like traveled to Africa and came back with malaria or um, you know, had sickle cell anemia or had medical diseases that happened outside of pregnancy, but they were happening during pregnancy and how the um, consultant for hematology would have to, you know, take into account the changes in pregnancy in order to figure out how to treat the sickle cell. And we would advise the doctors, yes, you can give this medication. No, you can't. And I really got interested in the interaction between internal medicine and pregnancy. So after I completed my residency, I wanted to study more of this interaction. How does pregnancy affect a typical medical disorder, how does a medical disorder maybe affect pregnancy? You know, not related to preterm labor, preeclampsia, but like medical disorders or diseases you can get outside of pregnancy. So therefore, I did a fellowship in high-risk obstetrics, which was two more years after residency. And then during those two years when I was studying, you know, high blood pressure, sickle cell disease, any infectious disease that happens in pregnancy, uh, I encountered women who were pregnant with cancer. And one, two, three, all three of them were advised to terminate their pregnancies. The first patient had Hodgkin's disease at 10 weeks, a couple months later, a patient with breast cancer at eight weeks, and a couple months later, a patient with melanoma at 10 weeks. And one by one, I learned a little bit more about the interaction of cancer and pregnancy, and I realized that an OBGYN may never encounter a patient who's pregnant with cancer, and an oncologist may never encounter a patient with cancer who's pregnant. And there has to be this liaison between the two parties to say to the oncologist, no, you can't do that nuclear medicine study to look at her heart before you give her adriamycin, but you can do it an echo and that's safe for the baby. Or, you know, I can say to them, well, she's only 10 weeks with Hodgkin's lymphoma. The organs are developing. The fetal organs are developing until 12. Is it going to hurt her prognosis if you delay her treatment for two weeks? So there had to be a liaison between the OB and the oncologist to kind of make a treatment plan if the patient didn't want to terminate the pregnancy. And there was some articles at the time that showed that for patients with Hodgkin's disease, whether you're pregnant or not, you don't have to terminate your pregnancy just because you have cancer, that you can have uh, safe therapy. So I presented that to the oncologist and we went on to treat the patient. And she said to me, you know, how do I know it's not going to affect my son? And 
I found this article that showed that these babies were followed till they were through puberty, some of them even as old as 18, and they were doing okay. And I said, I'll follow your son until he goes through puberty and make sure that he's growing okay. And I thought it was going to be just that one patient. And then um, a couple months later, another patient came with breast cancer, same thing. And I said, well, two of the agents that the patient with Hodgkin's lymphoma received for her four cycles, for her four chemotherapy types is used for breast cancer. If we can wait, your oncologist says that you can also wait safely to get out of the first trimester, then I'll follow your daughter. And just one by one, and everyone kept saying to me, it's never going to happen again. It's never going to happen again. And as women are delaying their childbearing, you know, cancer and pregnancy is occurring more than we thought it would. And now, so I decided to, I continue to follow those three children. And then when the fourth patient came along, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, instead of doing this on pieces of paper that I keep for myself, I'm going to make a registry um, to follow these children and these moms. And now it's up to 500 women who've had cancer during their pregnancy that I follow them and their children. I love that. Um, so tell me a little bit about your cancer during pregnancy registry, which is so incredibly important for people that have been affected by cancer during pregnancy. So I still meet people today who call and say they were advised to terminate their pregnancy um, despite being pregnant um, and despite there being some studies showing that it definitely does not worsen your prognosis to be pregnant at the time of your diagnosis. Um, if you, for most cancers, um, there are some cancers that may, um, be more aggressive during pregnancy, but for most cancers, it acts the same as if you weren't pregnant. And if you get treated in a timely manner, you should have the same prognosis as a non-pregnant patient. So a patient doesn't have to be treated, you know, in the tri-state area near me to be in the registry of people in the registry of California from, from Poland, from all over. So basically when someone's diagnosed with cancer, doesn't matter where they're being treated, all I want them to do is give me their written permission to follow them and to get their cancer records, see how they were diagnosed, see if the pregnancy affected their diagnosis at all or delay their diagnosis, see how they're treated, and then see when they deliver and then have the written permission to request those records from the oncologist and get the delivery records from the OBGYN and then they also sign a medical release for me to contact their pediatrician. And every year in the month of the baby's birth, so if they're born in March, in March, every baby born in March, we contact their pediatricians to see if the baby's growing okay, meeting milestones, what's their height, what's their weight, how are they doing? I think it's so beautiful and so important that you're putting all this time and energy into resources so that we can know long-term outcomes of children that were born to mothers that had cancer during pregnancy. Well, that's the hardest part for the patient because, you know, most pregnant women, they could have a seizure disorder, they could have hypertension, they could have diabetes. They, they come to prenatal care very often say, I stopped my, my hypertension medicine in case it wasn't safe for the pregnancy. Like most women will put their own health at risk thinking that not taking their medication is better for the baby. So if you can't tell them that the outcome after chemo is going to be acceptable development, then they're not going to want to be treated during pregnancy. And they're either going to go through the pregnancy and I... I heard, you know, sad stories where women refused treatment because they didn't find the registry. They didn't find a doctor that could tell them that there'd be no outcome, no poor outcomes. And then they died when the baby was 18 months of age because they didn't accept treatment until it was, you know, delivery. Or the other thing that happens is if the patients and or the doctor's not knowledgeable that 
that type of cancer has been safely treated before, they might suggest that the patient deliver preterm. And now you have a preterm baby um, that has medical issues that could have been avoided had you had chemo and extended the pregnancy to term. The other thing for patients who are pregnant with cancer to know is that there's a great support group in Buffalo called Hope for Two. And if you call them and you say, you know, I'm 12 weeks pregnant with breast cancer, they will match you up with another woman who had breast cancer during pregnancy who already delivered. And that person can tell you what to expect. You hear the baby talking or crying in the background. You know that they had a good outcome. It's very supportive for you. And sometimes they can put you in touch with me as well. But, you know, even if you, even if you don't want to be in the registry, those women are great you know, support. And actually, I, there was a patient in Philadelphia who was diagnosed at a local hospital, had no idea about the registry. She called Hope for Two. They paired her up with someone in California. And the woman in California said, you know, you're right in your Camden. If you're in Philly, you should go see Elise. So it's it's a really good network of, of women that want to support each other. And Oh, I love that. Um, and as we know, you know, can, uh, breast cancer during pregnancy is the most common uh, cancer during pregnancy. So that is all very important. Um, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are regarding cancer during pregnancy? I think the biggest, mis- the biggest misconception is that um, you have to terminate the pregnancy when you're diagnosed. Um, and then you're asking the patient, yeah, you're asking the patient to choose between her life and the baby's life, which is a really difficult position to put somebody in. Most people choose the baby over themselves, so they want to continue the pregnancy and not have treatment. That's not a good option. Because if you have, you know, acute leukemia and you don't accept treatment, you're going to die with the baby inside of you. You know, you're not going to make it to term because that can just be so aggressively, uh, you know, advance quickly and you need to be treated. So one misconception is that termination will make uh, the cancer more treatable. Um, The other misconception is that you... Um, you know, should deliver preterm to avoid therapy. And when we looked at, we did developmental testing on the children exposed to chemotherapy. And we actually found that when you deliver a term, the babies exposed to chemotherapy did just as well as the unexposed babies, but the babies that delivered preterm chemo or not had more issues. And it was more preterm was more important than chemotherapy exposure. So the goal is really getting a full term baby. If you can, like if you can, if you can. So if you're diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, leukemia, breast cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancers that we've treated before, a lot of the chemotherapies overlap. We have data that these babies, especially adriamycin and cytoxan, hundreds and hundreds of babies have had normal outcomes, normal development, you know, on par with their peers and siblings. You know, then we have information for you. If you're diagnosed with a rare cancer, you know, it's a lot harder. We may not have as many babies uh, to have information on. But um, if you have a preterm birth or you terminate the pregnancy, then, you know, that's a different outcome all all entirely. So it is scary. Like I, the first patient I had with Hodgkin's lymphoma, I was able to present that paper to her that said, these women in Mexico were treated for leukemia. This is how the babies have done. If I was the first person to do it, it would have been much scarier. I knew that these babies had developed normally. It was only... 80 of them was a small number compared to, you know, experience we have with treating hypertension and other things. But there was more data on looking at pregnant women who had breast or Hodgkin's lymphoma that terminated and showing five years later, there was no difference. That there was a lot of information. So I couldn't tell them that termination was going to make their cancer survivor better. Mm -hmm. 
And then the next was treat, you know, the next step was treatment. Yeah, I think that really emphasizes the importance of the, you know, cancer during pregnancy registry. So we could have long-term outcomes for both, you know, patients and their babies. Exactly. So how can someone register for the cancer registry? So it's just a phone call, really. I mean, oncologists can call, an OBGYN can call, a patient can call. Um, we get them on the phone or or we get their email. We, we send them consent forms and explanations about the registry. And as much as I can, I try to talk to each patient and just for my own knowledge to see what trends are happening. So I ask every patient if she was advised to terminate. And I'm happy to say it was across the board 20% in the first 15 years of the registry, 10 to 15 years, and now it's down to to 12%. So we're making progress. So I try to talk to everyone, you know, and I tell them, I don't want to change your therapy necessarily, but if your doctors are offering you a new treatment that hasn't been studied in pregnancy, and we have data on older therapy that works just as well, as far as we can tell, and and we have data on, then maybe you should go with, with that one. Um, and you know, the other thing that we've learned is that if you deliver a baby within three weeks of the cycle, that their blood counts can be low, just like mine was from chemo. Babies' blood counts don't have enough time. And if you deliver a preterm baby before the placenta has had that three-week time, then their liver is not mature enough to metabolize whatever, you know, they've been, uh, that reached them. So the other interesting, important thing is to talk with the obstetrician and the oncologist and say, okay, you need to pause chemo by 34, 35 weeks, in case that patient goes into labor 37, 38 weeks, not everybody makes it to their due date. You need a three-week time period between the last cycle and delivery. So sometimes you get into like the timing of when to stop the chemo, when to induce delivery. I actually wanted to ask you that. So what are some considerations that you make with timing of like chemotherapy and surgery relative to the pregnancy? So... Surgery can be done first, second, third trimester. It doesn't matter. Any trimester surgery can be safely be done. There's a misconception also that the best time to do surgery is this, and the only time is the second trimester. If you have a choice, first trimester, there might be you know a risk for miscarriage. 15% of all pregnancies miscarry in the first trimester. 15% of patients exposed to surgery miscarry. So it's no higher, but if you have surgery in the first trimester and you miscarry, you may not know whether it was going to happen anyway or if it happened due to surgery. So there's a misconception that first trimester surgery causes miscarriage. If you have surgery in the third trimester and you're not well hydrated or you're, you're positioned on your back too long instead of your hips tilted, you know, you might have contractions in preterm labor. So therefore that means that the second trimester is the best time. So the second trimester may not have the same risk for preterm labor or miscarriage, but it's not to say that you can't have surgery first, second or third trimester. You absolutely can have it at any time. So if you're, diagnosed, if you're diagnosed at eight weeks, again, I would say to the oncologist or the surgeon, well, four weeks delay until she's out of the first trimester, change her prognosis. And if it's yes, then you can safely do it at, you know, eight to 10 weeks. If no, then you wait. Um, do you do more of a surgery first approach when you're talking about breast cancer during pregnancy or not necessarily? So if someone is diagnosed at eight weeks, um, I don't have a problem with doing surgery for six weeks, especially six weeks, because now you got to wait six weeks to get out of the first trimester to do surgery. So if it's a large tumor and the doctor would have otherwise preferred to do chemo first, you have to have that conversation about what does the delay mean. But in that case, if someone was diagnosed, you know, as early as six weeks and wanted to continue, I probably would have the doctor do a mastectomy so that 
while she's waiting to heal and getting out of the first trimester, she goes on to get chemo in the second trimester. Right. I, I feel like with breast cancer during pregnancy, it's always like you're trying to delay any damage to the baby, right? So you're trying to delay chemotherapy until the second or third trimester, until the baby's a little bit more formed, but also prioritizing the mother's health. Is that right? Absolutely. It's a balance, you know? So I've started chemo as early as 12 weeks in somebody who was diagnosed as six weeks. I didn't want to wait more than six weeks. And that, you know, especially with Hodgkin's lymphoma, you don't have another option. You can't do surgery to temporize. Breast, you know, you can temporize with surgery. So I have no problem doing, having a patient have surgery at six weeks. It doesn't, I'm not worried about the anesthesia or there's plenty of women who've undergone. I mean, think about it. Pregnant women get into car accidents. Pregnant women have appendicitis. Pregnant women have had general anesthesia for many, many indications at every gestational age. And the babies have done, you know, fine. Yeah, I think it's important here to mention that, you know, cancer, the breast cancer is the most common cancer during pregnancy. And pregnant women who get breast cancer tend to have more aggressive subtypes. Is that right? No. No. So we thought we the early mm-hmm. studies did show that the breast cancer um, was more delayed diagnosis, but that was really because people assumed the masses in the person's breasts were due to were due to clogged milk ducts or changes in pregnancy. Or even if they acknowledged that it might be cancer, they didn't want to do a mammography. Or if they acknowledged it, they did the mammography, they didn't want to do the biopsy. So there were all these steps along the way that cancer got diagnosed. So even estrogen-positive breast cancer is not more aggressive in pregnancy. So it's not that it's just more aggressive. It's not that it's more aggressive. It's usually delayed diagnosis. Correct. Correct. But now things are better. On the radiology side, I could tell you that, you know, Everyone is scared of a pregnant patient, right? right? Like nobody wants to damage her, the baby. So everyone's just walking on eggshells. So, you know, and if a woman comes in with a breast lump, right, like most likely it's going to be a clogged milk duct. But sure. we don't really know until you evaluate it appropriately. So I think that the, the recommendations say like any breast lump that's lo- lasting longer than two weeks needs to be evaluated. Okay. It is safe to get a mammogram during pregnancy. Sure. You know, um, Usually, unless you're due for your mammogram, we usually start with an ultrasound because, right, that has no radiation and we can just look if something is suspicious. We could tell if it's a milk duct or a mass or a cyst, you know, so that really answers most of the questions. If there's any more question, you know, we could always get a mammogram. We always try to keep that in consideration. But, you know, I do think that there is this common misconception that it's just a clogged milk duct when we don't actually know that. And I do think that pregnant women with breast cancer, with breast lumps need to be taken seriously. Agreed. Agreed. And the same yeah. actually with pregnant women who have a suspicious mole. Like some people say, oh, that just changes because you're pregnant. But if it, you know, the borders are irregular or it starts itching you or it's darker and not like a, like homogeneous, the whole thing, the same color, it needs to be biopsied the same as if you weren't pregnant. Right. We have to start treating patients like they're not pregnant. Not that they're not pregnant, but look at them like the whole picture that they also have, you know, also happen to be pregnant, but they have this mole. Right. Like, would you be concerned about it? Right. This patient came to me at like 12 weeks saying that she was itching and the OBGYN told her it was cholestasis of pregnancy. You know, that's when you get itching and many women have and your liver studies go up. And I said to her, this is not cholestasis of pregnancy at 12 weeks. 
That's a diagnosis that happens in the third trimester. So yes, you're pregnant. And yes, you have a common symptom of itching, but you don't have it at the right time to just assume this is pregnancy. And she ended up having like a liver duct cancer. Like you have to look at the patient as if she's not pregnant. Um, I mean, if she had been third trimester, it would have been more difficult because we would have looked at the bile acids and maybe that would have been the case. But I, this is not pregnancy related when you're only first trimester and you have to look at that patient as if, as if she's not pregnant. I mean, 100%. I think that's a huge take home point from this episode is that we have to, you know, as healthcare professionals, we have to look at the whole patient and not just because they're pregnant, you know, put them in this box because pregnant people can develop, you know, chronic conditions like cancer as well. And we just have to like look at their complaints and take them seriously and not just attribute it to being pregnant. You've offered so much insight. I love you so much. I love you too. Um, where are you in your book? Huh. Tell me about you. <laughs> we're both writing books. We're book right. writing buddy, buddies. I keep. But we're in the very so early I've been Googling like dictation services. I've Googled more about how to write the book than the, writing the damn book. Um, I have been writing down ideas though. Like lately I can't sleep at night when I think, oh, I want to remember to include this. I want to remember to include that. So I get up and I write myself a note like, don't forget this. Don't forget that. So I'm making lists of things I want to include in the book. Um, I've reached out to patients to ask what they want to contribute towards the book. So I have a lot of scattered notes and paragraphs. I just have to kind of. That's me too. I know I have like, like notepads. I have like voice memos, written memos. Like I just need to get more organized with my thoughts, but it's a struggle. And and we've talked about this. I want you to put your personal story in that book because I think that you have so much to share. I will. I will. I just, you know, and then you don't have a lot of energy some days, like some days, you know, that was the other thing for me that was hard, especially from being an overachiever or type A is like the first two months. Well, I worked through radiation. I, I was pushed through the radiation and I worked through the first two cycles of chemo, but then the symptoms started to accumulate. And I was like, there's, I'm going to be too tired, nauseous. I don't want to be at work wanting to throw up or or not being able to eat and then feeling weak by the end of the day. So I, I finally took family leave when I was halfway through the chemo and I thought, Oh, I'm going to have all this time off. Well, I did nothing. I was tired. I didn't feel well. And I was mad at myself for not accomplishing something. Like I should have wrote a chapter by now. And, and I, I spent really the first month chastising myself for vegging. And, not, and you have cancer. <laughs> and I have cancer. So yes. Right. Oh my God. I like do the same. I like tore my ACL and, uh, you know, had carpal tunnel surgery this past year. And every time I'm like, I'm going to write my book. It's not possible. No, you can't look at your medical leave. Like you're going to write a book. Yes. That's what I did. I was going to meditate. I was going to like just change everything. And I did nothing. I had no energy to do anything. You're healing. I'm trying. Yes, exactly. Yes. But it took me like a month to get that mindset. I know. I, I'm the same way. You're like fighting that. Like you, it's, it's so hard to just let it go. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. just, and just ride the wave, like let your body just do its thing and get better. But it's so hard. I agree. Before I let you go. Yeah. Tell me your favorite summer memory so far. Of this summer? Yeah. Do you have one? I went to Beyonce with my daughter. Oh, so did I. I was there yeah, too. I was. I love it. That was it. I, I, it just turned out that the concert was going to be like, again, week three, 
my best week, you know, three weeks from the prior chemo, but like a day or two before the next cycle. And I was feeling good. My counts were fine. And, uh, I just pushed myself to go with her and it was, it was, it was really great. Yeah. It was great. That's so special. What a concert, right? Yeah. Except we had no idea that the concert's at eight and she'll come on at nine forty-five. Oh yeah. So she's we a late there. Girl. Yeah. We were there eight o'clock. We were running late and we were like thrilled because we didn't miss anything. Right. We were so afraid to miss the opening act that I was like, we got to get there at eight. Oh, and she don't have no opening act. No, she does. Well, I, not opening act, but I wanted to see her come out. Like how right. I thought she was going to come out on a horse or some like thing. And uh, I didn't want to miss it. And we got there at eight and we sat in our seats in the sun for like an hour and a half. But it was worth it. It was great. Beyonce comes on when she wants to come on. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> Her dad had breast cancer and is a BRCA, I think, two carrier. Wow. Did you know that? I, I did know. not know that. Mm-hmm. And her daughter performed, which was great. Oh, she was so good. Blue Ivy was so good. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. I loved the whole thing. It was great. Tell me something fun you're looking forward to. Oh, ringing that oh. bell. Ringing uh, that bell. I can't wait to ring that cancer bell that I'm done with everything. Well, can I come? When is that happening? Yes. Hopefully September 7th at, at uh, Camden. If, if my next cycle tomorrow goes, then the next one, three weeks should be then. However, they said since the last two times, my count was, you know, two times ago it was low, but just barely made it. And then this time that maybe that September 7th will be bumped again. I don't know. Uh, well, I wish you the breath of luck. You're amazing. <laughs> I love you so much. I love you too. Thank you for uh, organizing this. Thank you. And how can people find you on social media and in life? Well, cancer and, at Cancer and Pregnancy is the Instagram. www.cancerandpregnancy.com is the website. I am thrilled to report that Dr. Cardonic did ring that bell. And I'm just so happy for her that she's completed her treatment and just praying for years and years and years of a happy and healthy life with negative scans. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or learned something new, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and help spread the word. If you tell me you did, I'll give you a big virtual smoocheroo. And of course, make sure you follow me across all social media platforms at The Booby Docs for more of the breast information. And a huge thank you to my podcast producer, Christian Cuveta, an amazing medical student who also wrote and produced the music for this show. Take it away, Christian.